All right, kids, we're going to do something crazy today. We're going to be on this side of the, sa- of the stage. So, kids, come on up and find a spot to sit right over here. Come on up. You can sit down on the floor or on the stairs there. Come on up, guys. All right, come on over. You guys can sit down here on the floor, too, right here in front of me if you want. There's space right here. All right, good to see everyone. Now, today we're going to start a time called Advent. So we have our Advent wreath here, and we missed last week. So guess what? We have to do double duty today. We have to do two candles today, all right? So Advent, the word Advent means coming or arrival, And Advent is the time leading up to Christmas. Now, what do we celebrate coming or arriving at Christmas? Yeah, Jesus was born on Christmas Day. Yeah. So we celebrate Jesus. I don't have any presents for you today. You'll have to wait. Christmas is coming. Yeah, we celebrate Jesus coming, right? That's what we celebrate. And so we use the Advent wreath to help us. And so each of the weeks that are left before Christmas, we'll light one of the candles, and we'll talk about Jesus coming. And so today we're going to light the first candle. It's called the expectation candle. Can you all say expectation candle? Good job. So we'll get that lit. There we go. All right, expectation candle. So expectation is a belief that something will happen. So the people of God believed that a Savior would come because it was predicted throughout the Old Testament, in the, Old, uh, the, in the Bible, the Old Testament. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, God's people were rejoicing, and they were shouting for joy, and they said, it says, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. So God's people were rejoicing because a king was going to come to them. This king would be righteous. He would do and act rightly in God's sight. And he would have salvation. He would come to save people from their sin. So because the Old Testament told of this coming king, this coming savior, the people were waiting for him, expecting him to come. They believed that it would happen. And so next, we're going to light the, the next candle called the prophecy candle. Everyone say prophecy candle. Good, prophecy candle, all right? Now the, word, now, the word prophecy means a foretelling of something that is to come. And so the people of God believed that a Savior would come because it had been told to them, right? In the many places throughout the Old Testament, there were prophecies recorded many of them told of where the Savior would come from and how the Savior would come and when he would come. One example is in Micah chapter 5. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. So this verse says that a ruler, a king, would come from the city of Bethlehem. Do you know who was born in Bethlehem? Jesus Jesus was born in Bethlehem, yeah. So that's one example of prophecy about the coming Savior. And there there are lots more in the Old Testament. Okay, so here's your quiz for the day. What is the name of the first candle that we lit? Go ahead and say it. 
expectation candle. Yep, because the people of God expected that a Savior would come. And the second candle is called what? Prophecy candle. Yeah, because the Bible foretold of the coming Savior. And so those are our first two candles, and we'll light a third one next week. Thanks for coming up. Guys, you can go back and have a seat. All right. Uh, If you weren't aware, last week we missed services because of the snow, and that was the year anniversary of being in our new building, so this is our 53rd week of being here, praise God. I just want to thank everybody for all the work. Yeah. Yeah, you guys have done a lot here in uh, decorating and so forth, so thank you. And then I'm going to beg your pardons for the song choices. We have this sing-along on Wednesday, and we have some new songs, and so we're trying to learn them, so that's why it was a little, uh, as Keith mentioned, they didn't connect real well, but hopefully you'll learn them. So if you want to come Wednesday, please do. It should be an enjoyable. We just want it to be a relaxed, fun time of singing some good songs. All right, we are in the book of Isaiah this morning. Isaiah 57, 15 will be the main verse I'm preaching out. We'll read a, the section 14 to 21 there, Isaiah 57. So Isaiah is about in the middle of your Bible, maybe just a right to the right of the middle. Um, the book of Isaiah, chapter 57, verse 15, although I'll read 14 to 21. So Advent is here. Advent is typically celebrated in the church as the four Sundays before Christmas, and it's a reminder that just as God's people waited for the arrival of the promised Savior before his coming, so now we too await uh, his coming. The final prayer in the Bible that we're taught to pray is, come Lord Jesus, come. And we're meant to pray that with our bones. I mean, this is the thing that we, you and I, as believers, have hope in, desire more strongly than anything else is to see Jesus Christ. And that's what Advent is about. Our text this morning is going to describe the, the kind of people we're to be as we await him. What are we to be like? What's our um, posture, our demeanor? And then, who is the one who is coming? That's what we see in this text. Let me read verses 14 to 21. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I had made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry, I struck him. I hid my face and I was, and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of, lips, of the lips. Peace, peace to the far end of the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss, toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked." Let's pray. Oh, high and holy Father, above all, your word alone can be our hope 
And so please teach our souls to long for your salvation. Comfort us now by your spirit as we await the coming promise, your son, our savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. How long, O God, must we endure this place of sin and sorrow? Help us or we will fall. In your steadfast life, love, give us life so that we may keep your testimonies of your mouth. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Isaiah is uh, one of the most majestic in the Bible. It's sometimes referred to as the gospel of the Old Testament. The only book quoted more often in the New Testament than Isaiah is Psalms. Isaiah contains within it the entire message of the Bible. It centers on the great glory of God in saving sinners. So you see in Isaiah both the high majesty of God and the profound depth of love and mercy of God in coming to those undeserving in salvation. And so this book is about Jesus. Uh, Within the book of Isaiah, we see throughout it not only foretelling about Jesus, but Jesus himself. Our text, Isaiah 57, 15, concerns this coming of Jesus. It's an Advent text. It's, a, it's about the coming of Christ, explaining who Jesus is and what he will come to do and why he'll come to do it. Put it simply, Jesus is the God who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy and who dwells in a high and holy place, and who also dwells with the lowly. He comes to save the contrite sinner who is lowly in spirit. And he comes to do this or to revive them in order to give them life. This section begins with this call to prepare. It shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove everything out of the way of my people. <clears throat> Isaiah has, in the, in the wider context here, the context of removing the idols. Of removing those things that we use as substitutes for God. Now, in Isaiah's day, they actually had physical idols. They fashioned things out of wood or metal in order to bow down and worship them. We're too good for that. We're too um, uh, advanced to bow down and worship uh, uh, an idol crafted, but we're still the same. Idolatry proceeds from the heart. We are, because of our sin and Adam, always seeking, as we see in verse 13, always seeking something to deliver us. But we often put our hope in things that can't. Don't you do that? If something hard is going on in your life, what do you turn to? What do you turn to? Right? It could be food. Maybe you go and try to watch a Hallmark movie to make your heart feel a little happier. Yes, I'm starting that again. Whatever it is, we are preparing for the coming of the Savior by removing our idols. This is why John the Baptist led people in repentance. He was calling God's people out from that which they thought was their God that could deliver them that couldn't. Now, this call isn't just a call to turn away from something. It's a call to turn to something. We must replace our idols with Christ. It's not just enough for us to feel bad about our sin. We must turn and seek Christ. So we aren't sin-focused. We're Christ-focused. We focus on our sin for the sake of Christ. We root out 
our idols from our lives, not to feel better about ourselves, not to pat ourselves on the backs, not to exalt ourselves, but to humble ourselves and so to exalt Christ. So this entire Advent season is about exalting Jesus. That's what this is for. The reason that parents wrap up a whole bunch of gifts is because they want to show their children the kind of love that God the Father has for them and lavishly spending his son for them. The whole point in everything we do is exalting Jesus Christ. The the way was being prepared for someone, and that someone is Jesus. Now, who is he? I chose this text because several weeks ago I was reading um, in a book, and it brought out this text and the view of God as I think um, we were singing this morning is great. The view of Christ is great. Idolatry always seeks to bring God down to our size. We want a manageable God. We want a God that we can control. We want a Redeemer who saves us from the consequences of our sin but lets us keep sinning. But God is the one coming in Christ. Note in verse 15, he is the one. One in your Bibles is probably capitalized. Uh, Christianity often gets knocked for being so exclusive. Right? We, we, we as Christians believe there's only one way to heaven. There aren't many paths, not all paths lead to heaven. Christianity is a very exclusive religion, and it's true. It is. There is only one God, and there's only one Savior, Jesus Christ. There's only one way by faith in him. He is the one. There is no other than him. And he is the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, and who dwells in a high and holy place. He inhabits eternity. Notice that language. He doesn't dwell in a place. (laughs) He dwells in all time. I don't even know how to put language of that. He has no beginning and has no end. He is before all others. He exists in himself. He has never needed a thing from anyone. Everything else in the universe exists in time, is finite, is limited, has a beginning, has an ending, not God. God exists in forever. He's infinite. He's unlimited in life and power and existence. His very name is holy. His name is so awesome, is so wondrous, that rather than saying it, we simply say that it's holy. His name is pure. His name is above all others. This is who Jesus is. His name is the one only given to us in which we may find salvation. His name is to be treated as precious, to be revered, cherished, worshipped, feared. You and I are often tempted to fear the name of others more than his, aren't we? Doesn't your heart attach so much significance to what others think about you that does not attach to the significance of Jesus' name? Isn't that you? And here we see that his very name is holy. How little you and I think of him. Do you think of him like this? His name is holy. The place he dwells is the place fitting for one like him. He dwells in a high and holy place. The heavens cannot contain him. The earth is but a footstool for him. 
His dwelling place is described as high. He is above. He is better than. He is set apart. He is beyond you and I. You and I cannot attain him. No one can bring him down to us. And because he who dwells there is holy, that place in which he dwells is holy. We are here seeing a description of God who became man. This is Jesus. This is him. This is great uh, fuel for the fires of our worship. So I want to encourage you as you sing, do you sing like he is this? One of the things I love most about this season are the songs. It's rich. It's delightful. I can sing them all from memory. It's my favorite time of year, and it's my favorite time of year mainly because of the songs. And because the songs are so rich in describing him. Do you sing like this? Do you sing like he is described here? Doesn't this make you want to sing to him? What comes next then is utterly remarkable. The one who dwells in the high and holy place, the one who is, inhabits eternity, the one whose name is holy, who else does he dwell with? That next phrase, what comes next, is, is just staggering. And also, right, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Our exalted Savior stoops, condescends, low, and dwells with those who are low. So the first half of this verse describes the majesty of our Savior, but his majesty isn't a crushing one. The weight of his glory doesn't crush his people, Instead, it lifts his people up to dwell with him. So this high and holy Savior, who lives in a high and holy place, also dwells with the lowly. He came down. Christmas is a celebration of the incarnation of God, of God taking on human flesh. This is an essential, non-negotiable of being a Christian. We confess that Jesus is God of gods. He is truly God in every way. He is eternal, all-knowing, all-sufficient, all-everything. He is God of very God. And this God also became man. He is fully God and fully man. He came to dwell with those who are contrite and lowly spirit. So the holy God became man. He came to live with the meek and the humble, the bowed down. This is something utterly foreign in our world, isn't it? Those who are greatest in our world do not stoop to the lowest. The most powerful and wealthy and intelligent don't do well at stooping. Christ did. Our God isn't a prig. He's not a Pharisee. He's not a stuffed shirt. He's not uppity. He is superior. 
He is far above, exalted, but we also see his superiority in how low he is willing to go. And how low did he go? Well, we sang it. He was born. He went through birth. (laughs) He had to nurse. He got cold. He had to eat. He had to use the bathroom. And throughout Jesus' life, who did we see him with? Who was he always with? He chose 12 disciples who were absolutely nobodies. He was always with common people in common places. He didn't go to Jerusalem for his ministry. He went to Galilee. He, he went to Rhinelander. He went to no places with no buddies. This is our God. So see what's taking place here. Jesus Christ is the God above all gods. He humbled himself, taking on flesh, all the way to the point of dying on a cross. And so now he has a name that's above all names. He dwells in a place above all others. He comes to the humble. He comes to the lowly. Why? Why? We see something here that you and I need. He will not share his glory with anybody. He will not come to a proud person because a proud person wants the glory that he alone is doing. He will not share one ounce of his glory with another. He will come to those who will enjoy his glory, who will worship his majesty. This is why he comes to the lowly. This is why he comes to the contrite, because he comes to those who need him. He will not share his glory. He will not yield an inch of his honor. This is the best news for us. Because he has tied his glory to our salvation, he will save us because he cares more for his glory than anything else. So what's going on in this verse. So do you rob God of glory? What do you have that has not been given? We read in the Bible that even demons know more about us than God and we boast in what we know about God. We do good things in the church and good things in the community and we so desire somebody to pat us on the back, to prop up our ego. But we know that even that good that we did has been tainted with our sin and even that good that we did is only a gift of God. He comes to the humble. And so what we are seeing described here is the biblical description of humility. The description of those who, come, who Christ comes to dwell with is a description of what you and I are to think of our righteousness before him. This entire section is about God saving us from our idols, from our sins. We are to see that we have nothing in ourselves to commend us to God. He dwells in a high and holy place. We have no standing with him there. 
We have nothing to get us there. We have nothing to allow him to enter us into there. You and I, in of ourselves, are wholly poor and destitute of anything to get us to God. We have no right before God. We have no access. When it says, I dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, he's talking how to people who think uh, this is how they think of their own righteousness. They have nothing. They have nothing. All we contribute, contribute to our salvation is a corpse. This is what it means. This isn't somebody who feels bad about themselves, okay? This isn't somebody who just thinks badly about himself or herself. This is somebody who comes to Christ with nothing, and needs his righteousness as everything. The, the most clear image of this in the Bible is when Jesus was talking to the um, tax collector, uh, sing a parable of a tax collector and a Pharisee. Remember that? The Pharisee was all pretentious, and God, I thank you that I'm not like. He's so self-confident. He's so self-righteous. And then off to the side is a tax collector who won't even lift up his head to look. He knows that he is so unworthy that his eyes can't even look upon God. And he's beating his chest and he's tearing out his hair. Have mercy on me, God. I'm just a sinner. That's what this is describing here. When he talks as somebody of a contrite and lowly spirit, He's talking about that kind of person. Now, look, no, notice this. Of a contrite and lowly spirit. Spirit is who we are in our essence. It's, it's what is the true you. This can't be faked. This can't be manufactured. When we look at our own goodness, ourselves, our own righteousness, we see Nothing. We are poor in spirit. We have nothing with which to purchase anything from him. This is about our righteousness before God. We have none. We have none. God won't be deceived. He knows you. You can't just mentally assent to this. You must feel it. You must feel it in the depths of your being that before God and his great holiness, you lay naked. You can't dress yourself up and internally have a wicked heart. What is your innocence in comparison with God's purity? Even stars lose their brightness when the sun rises. If you're going to find yourself dwelling with Christ that is coming, it must begin with you judging yourself as completely unworthy of that day. So there can be no pretense. Let's apply this to Christmas. Christmas can sometimes be the most stressful time of the year. And often that's related because you just want it to be so perfect. You just want it to be so beautiful and everybody to be so happy. You know that isn't true. 
So, so we can't come to Christmas pretentious. The best way to ruin Christmas is try to make it perfect. Just, just be a sinner, happy for anything. That's, that's what it is in our relationship with God. We have Christ, we have everything. But we often see ourselves as the good one, right? You argued with your spouse this week, did you? Who was the right one in that argument? You were, right? We almost always see ourselves as the one in the right, as the pure one, as the good one. When you as a child are arguing your case before your parents, are you ever wrong? So we can sit here and say, yes, I'm contrite, I'm lowly, but are we? Are you? See, Jesus didn't come to save the righteous, but sinners. He didn't come to those who are good. But what does he do when he comes? What was the last bit here? When he comes to dwell with those who are a contrite and lowly spirit, what does he come to do? He comes to revive, to lift up, to resurrect, to give us new life. We try so hard to hold on to an illusion of our righteousness. You come to church needing to appear right, to appear good, to have it all together. No sin in my family, no sin in my marriage, no sin in my parenting, no sin in my schooling. You fake it. Fake it. But here Christ says we must lose it. We must lose it. We must repent of our self-righteousness. And what do you get? Life. Resurrection. He is awesome, majestic, eternal, holy. And he humbled himself. He came down to dwell with us. And he comes to give us life. Life. So this is Christmas, isn't it? Why did the high and holy one stoop so low? To give you life. To give you life beyond anything you could ever hope. And so what's our response? Come. We want to see him who is high and exalted and who stoops so low to save us. That's it. Doesn't that make you want doesn't that make you want him to come? This is what we should want. Let's pray. Father, please teach us to desire your son above all else, to see him as he is, to see him as the high and lifted up one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, who dwells in a highly holy place, and to remember that he stooped low and paid the penalty due us for our sin. And may we worship him and want him above all others. And so God, train us in this, please. In Jesus' name, amen. The charge is this. Um, learn to mourn your sin so that you can more enjoy your Savior. He comes to the contrite, to the lowly. And so cultivate this Christmas a real displeasure at the evil you're prone to. And then turn in happy faith to a Savior who dwells with people like us. May the God of hope 
fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord, and I love you.